I'm Mark Kleiber, a director of financial regulation studies here at the Cato Institute. Uh, I had written a uh, long introduction with uh, very glowing bios of uh, our panelists, but the fact that is that uh, there is a House vote scheduled for around 2.15, so I'm throwing all that aside. We're going to turn it over to Congressman Henschelin to talk. If it's truly glowing, I have a little extra time. <laughs> well, fortunately, uh, like the House, I'm going to have that long glowing introduction inserted into the record. So we can go back and do it later. Uh, but with that said, I'm going to turn it over to Congressman Henschelin. He'll take a few questions, uh, and then we'll turn to the remaining panelists. Oh, here, here. Oh, either whatever makes you go. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Indeed, that is an um, introduction short like me. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Uh, before I get into the body of my remarks, you're actually in luck. Due to a pending House vote, we're going to condense... 20 minutes of remarks into seven on the fly. We'll see how that works out. Uh, before I get into the body of the remarks, I do want to thank uh, the Cato Institute for everything that they stand for and for everything that they have meant to me. I wish, if I could, to illustrate my commitment to Cato. As I was walking in the foyer, I noticed they had a copy of the uh, quarterly Cato journal uh, on, a, on a table there. I recall as an undergraduate at Texas A&M University in the 70s, I literally took $25, and I'm a guy who worked my way through college, $25 of my hard-earned money to invest in the Cato Journal. Now, being an undergraduate at Texas A&M in the 70s, that was money that could have been invested in long necks at the Dixie Chicken, our local watering hole. <laughs> but I had that great of commitment to the Cato Institute. I also want to thank uh, uh, John. If you have not read his book, I commend it to your reading. I received no commission for that, but I would recommend it to your reading as well. And I would like to tell you that uh, the senior leadership of the House Financial Services Committee, uh, before we decide to move out on any particular issue, we certainly glean the scholarship of Cato in general and Mark in specific. So although he didn't have time for a glowing introduction of me, I've got a glowing, I've got time for a glowing introduction of Cato. Uh, before I really speak about uh, the topic of the market versus the Fed as regulator, I just want to give a little context to my comments, and that is to broaden them out to the question of regulators and regulation in general. Because I think uh, many of us have concluded that the great tragedy of the fiscal crisis was not necessarily that our federal regulators failed to prevent the crisis, but in many respects helped precipitate the crisis indeed. Uh, number one, many of you are familiar with the narrative, but in brief, uh, we had a government-sanctioned duopoly in Fannie and Freddie. Uh, their leverage ratios were minuscule. Uh, compared to, uh, for example, uh, community banks in the 5th Congressional District of Texas. We know that the ill-fated affordable housing goals. Um, have you noticed any time when Democrats put affordable in front of something, it doesn't turn out too well? <laughs> <laughs> the affordable housing goals, which started at 30%, went to 42, went to 50, finally to 56. The Community Reinvestment Act, all which essentially... Uh, mandated cajoled strong-arm financial institutions into loaning money to people to buy homes that ultimately they could not afford to keep. Uh, speaking of duopolies, 
are oligopolies, I guess, are credit rating agencies. Uh, one of the few good things that Dodd-Frank did, and there are very few of them, uh, was to attempt to bring in more competition uh, into the credit rating agency business. Uh, the SEC oversight of investment banks, I think something else that was clear. Again, there are a number of reasons uh, why uh, the crisis uh, happen, but it was not lack of regulatory authority. Maybe it was regulatory error. Maybe it was regulatory timidity. Uh, maybe people flat made mistakes. Uh, but surely, if you look at the um, uh, consolidated uh, supervision uh, entity program of the SEC, they had the ability to prevent much of what we saw. And I certainly remember the now defunct OTS, their head, saying under oath they had full regulatory authority to have prevented uh, the failures of AIG. So let's look at the Fed now in specific, getting to the topic. Um, let's look at what the Fed did. Uh, we obviously know that uh, there was a decision made to bail out Bear and let Lehman fail. Uh, so much for forward guidance and the precedent that that set. Uh, we know that the Fed had oversight over bank holding companies they've had since uh, the 70s and certainly uh, was in the position uh, to influence all the lending practices of the bank uh, subsidiaries. Um, we know that the um, Fed famously uh, made a bad prediction on the direction of the housing markets. Uh, and we know for many of us who have paid very careful attention to the Taylor Rule that there was a great deviation uh, from the Taylor Rule leading up to this particular fiscal crisis. We all recall the Greenspan put. And so I don't say this necessary in or necessarily to try to be hypercritical of the Fed, but to some extent, uh, not unlike, I guess it was Toto in the Wizard of Oz to pull back the curtain and to know that Fed is actually human. I must admit, prior to coming to Congress, I've now served as a member of Congress for 10 years. Uh, prior to that, I served 10 years in the private sector as an officer in a couple of early growth companies. I say that as background to say that uh, I have not discovered in my 10 years in Washington that uh, people in Washington are inherently smarter than those out on mainstream America, with the exception of the scholars at the Cato Institute. <laughs> Am I piling it on thick enough? <laughs> All right. Keep going. <laughs> Very good. Uh, we know that uh, the Fed was given uh, e extraordinary uh, statutory guidance uh, with respect to Basel, uh, where essentially you could reserve very little uh, against uh, sovereign debt, uh, an agency MBS, um, think Greek bonds, and Fannie and Freddie. Um, we know that um, uh, the Fed has... Uh, given responsibility on um, uh, institute counterparty concentration limits. Uh, we've got the Volcker rule, we've got QM, we've got QRM. Uh, we have a number of different um, items uh, that the Fed, uh, I believe, actually helped uh, contribute uh, to the uh, crisis that we saw. And regrettably, what happened in Dodd-Frank uh, is we rewarded this particular uh, federal agency with even increased powers. Uh, and I could certainly go through those in quite a lot of detail. Uh, I think before you uh, go further into examining 
uh, Fed versus market regulation, you have to think somewhat in terms of their mandate. Uh, and is their mandates actually friend or foe of their ability to be an effective bank regulator? We often hear discussion of the so-called dual mandate. I would respectfully submit um, we have multiple mandates. The maintenance of stable prices, uh, maximum employment under Humphrey Hawkins, uh, moderate long-term interest rates, apparently now regulator of market stability, lender of last resort, and need I add, add landlord to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, just to name a few. Uh, I would respectfully suggest that in divided government, uh, it is going to be uh, challenging uh, to make um, dramatic changes in the way the Fed conducts its business. But nonetheless, uh, we dream bold dreams in America, and so here are a handful of policies uh, of which we will look to in the short term at the House Financial Services Committee to try to um, inject more market confidence and discipline. Number one, we always agree uh, in the importance of transparency. Even Chairman Bernanke has spoken before. People have to understand what it, the Fed, is doing, why is it doing, and what basis is making its decisions. I would respectfully suggest to the chairman there could be some room for improvement in this particular area. We always hear arguments about the Fed maintaining its independence. I would respectfully submit that is with respect to monetary policy, not the exercise of fiscal policy of which it has found itself exercising today, uh, nor does it mean independence from the legislative and judicial branches of government. Within that respect, we think that greater transparency will always be healthy for the Fed, and that's why uh, under my chairmanship, we will continue to um, uh, maintain our commitment uh, to the legislation to audit the Fed, which in this Congress uh, without uh, former Chairman Paul, has been introduced by Representative Paul Brown of Georgia. We also wish to ensure that the Fed operates under this radical notion of cost-benefit analysis. Uh, it is something that theoretically uh, the SEC and the CFTC are supposed to be subject to. Uh, Thirty years ago, the Fed maintained that uh, they would abide by it, uh, many of us have not seen that in the practice. We know that uh, there has been a call uh, by many uh, in the, uh, to uh, have the Fed, as it engages in the new buzzword, macroprudential policy, uh, to go out and hire more attorneys. In fact, the Conference of State Bank Supervisors has recently issued a report uh, asking the president to place more nominees with legal experience on the federal Reserve Board, I would maintain, <clears throat> in an attempt to ensure greater market discipline. Uh, one of the ratios that we are creating at the House Financial Services Committee is the attorney-to-economist ratio among the federal <laughs> workforce. Uh, most have about 100 to 1 or perhaps even 500 to 1 in the wrong uh, uh, direction, and we would particularly pay deference to those who have some training in the Chicago and Austrian School of Economics. Uh, we also know that uh, looking upon the Fed as a uh, bank regulator, there continues to be trade-offs between their monetary and regulatory uh, purpose uh, mandate. Uh, certainly the Volcker rule 
I think can make it more difficult uh, to make a market in corporate bonds. If that market becomes less efficient, clearly the Fed's ability to translate lower rates onto treasuries uh, on lower, into lower rates on corporate bonds can be uh, dis, uh, diminished. Uh, finally, uh, one of the um, uh, items that we think would help greatly with forward guidance uh, is to um, look very seriously uh, at how the Taylor Rule could be applied uh, at the Fed. We are very familiar with it as it has been around for at least 25 years. Uh, and it is one of many items of which the House Financial Services Committee uh, will be forwarding uh, to the Fed. Uh, last but not least, I would like to say, uh, without even touching upon the Fed's 13-3 exigent powers and the fact that Dodd-Frank has not sufficiently constrained that, I think we all know, and uh, as you are at this uh, conference, it is the 100th anniversary uh, of the creation and founding of the Federal Reserve. Um, I was uh, privileged to have breakfast with Chairman Bernanke a couple of months ago and told him we would offer a birthday present to the Fed, and that would be the most rigorous oversight plan they have seen in their entire history. <laughs> so I wish to tell you, and we will have the formal rollout in the month of December, which is the true 100th anniversary, uh, that the House Financial Services Committee intends to re-examine all conventional wisdom uh, dealing with the Federal Reserve without necessarily preordaining the conclusion. A former Fed chairman, William McChesney Martin, once observed that the Fed, quote, should always be engaged in a ruthless examination of its own record. We plan to help the Fed in that regard. Uh, so we uh, had a hearing yesterday dealing with uh, alternative models of different uh, international central banks. Uh, we will be uh, uh, examining the Fed's independence and exactly where should that be properly respected uh, and where it has no proper place. Uh, QE 333 Infinity, I assure you, is uh, high on our list of priorities. Uh, the Fed's role in enabling the massive debt uh, that threatens our nation, our future, our economy, uh, will be part of what we examine. Uh, the impact of picking winners and losers uh, through quantitative easing, in this case, seniors and saver, savers being losers. Uh, we will take a look at uh, the uh, contingency planning of the Fed uh, for the debt ceiling, examining a full menu of policy rules, including the Taylor Rule. Uh, we will be examining, again, their lender of last resort function, uh, whether or not it has ever been defined. If so, I have yet to find it myself the proper boundaries between monetary policy and fiscal policy. Uh, there are many multiple mandates, and not the least of which is the entirety of their 100-year history and what has America looked like uh, since uh, adopting a fiat currency. So uh, please look forward to that. Uh, as always, we will be uh, very interested in the views of all the scholars at Cato as we launch uh, upon this uh, enterprise. Uh, and again, I thank you for the opportunity to come before you today, and I'd be happy to attempt to answer a question or two. Uh, while someone is uh, queuing up, let me also emphasize, uh, please uh, phrase your question in the form of a question, uh, and please keep it quite brief, because I know the chairman has to leave very soon. Yes, sir. 
Thank you, Congressman. I'm Jerry Jordan. Thanks for a great set of remarks. Uh, because Congress created the abomination of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, is there any chance at all that Congress will correct that mistake, or do we have to rely on the Supreme Court declaring it unconstitutional to get rid of it? Uh, the chances of the 113th Congress repealing it is somewhere between zero and a negative real number. <laughs> Um, please call that a reality check, not pessimism. Uh, I see no appetite for the Democrat Senate to take it up. Uh, I can assure you, along with the Fed, there is no agency of the federal government that will receive greater oversight from our committee uh, than the CFPB, the Orwellian-named CFPB. Um, I haven't undertaken an extensive study on the subject, but my preliminary conclusion is that there has never been a more powerful or less accountable agency in the history of the Republic than the CFPB. Uh, I, it is um, an insult and an affront to the economic, fundamental economic liberties of the American citizenry. I don't know how you purport to be pro-consumer as you take away uh, consumer choice, as you make credit opportunities less available, uh, and more expensive. Outside of that, I have no strong opinions on the matter. <laughs> <laughs> Are you calling it? Uh, you, you can pick. Right. Yes, sir. Simple because I can see you in front. Thank you, sir. Uh, Carl Golovin. Uh, the monetary provisions of the Constitution uh, state that no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debt. Uh, many years ago, there was an author, Frederick Tupper Saucy, who wrote a book entitled The Miracle on Main Street, suggesting that the mechanism right there in the Constitution is in place where individuals around the country can persuade their state and local taxing authorities that to be taxed in a private monetary unit is unconstitutional, and that in theory the states could ask the federal government to reinstitute redeemability and a circulating gold and silver coin. Uh, do you view that as a possibility? How about that Johnny Manziel at Texas A&M University? <laughs> um, I would say that, again, um, somewhat dodging your question, um, because I attempt to forge some type of consensus among the members of my party on the committee. Uh, again, I would simply repeat that we are going to take a very careful um, uh, look back at uh, exactly what, does, what has happened uh, to our economy um, and look very carefully at the provisions of our Constitution as we have adopted a fiat currency and decoupled from gold. That will certainly be a part of our 100-year um, uh, oversight plan for the Fed. Uh, but as you well know, it is a... Um, weighty subject of which there are a number of varied opinions. And as um, chairman, I seek first to, again, find a consensus within my own side of the aisle, and I'm working on that today. And it's close of an answer you're going to get on that one. <laughs> Weighing back. Uh, 
Carol, Carol, would you just wait a second to the microphone gets to you? Although it is quickly, quickly approaching. Thank you. Uh, Carol Van Cleef of Patton Boggs. Um, uh, this coming week, uh, the Senate Banking Committee and the Senate uh, Committee on Homeland Security are hosting hearings on the issue of virtual currencies. Uh, given your comments with respect to the Fed, uh, I was wondering uh, what your view of the Fed's role is going forward in this area and uh, what, if anything, your committee uh, will be doing with respect to virtual currencies in uh, the near or uh, medium term? No, it's, it's an interesting topic. I would say it's one that we will look at more in the uh, medium term uh, uh, versus uh, the short term. It's not going to happen this year. It is something that is on our agenda. Uh, I'm intrigued and still uh, informing my own opinion at the moment. So it will be uh, part of a subject. Um, uh, it will be addressed uh, in our hearings uh, going forward. Um, some of you may or may not know. Um, we've been a little busy on the committee with something called Fannie and Freddie abolition, and that's been kind of a heavy lift. Mm -hmm. So we have lots on the agenda, uh, but certainly looking uh, at the virtues uh, of virtual currency is one of them, and that's more of a medium-term item but I assure you it's on our radar screen. Yes, sir, right over there on the aisle. Yes, sir. Is, it, is, is EPA reform in stopping the expansion of coal and fracking regulation on the agenda, or is it another year? Well, my committee doesn't have jurisdiction. Um, over the EPA, we've got a lot of alphabet soup agencies and cabinet, but that's not one of them. Um, you know, if there's an agency of government that um, has done more harm to our economy than EPA, I do not know its name. It's certainly not going to be from lack of effort from House Republicans, but that would be a question better suited for Chairman Upton of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. It's not one I'm necessarily well-versed on. Regrettably, I have time for one more question. Of course, if it's difficult, I have time for two more questions. <laughs> right there on the aisle. Hey, uh, Gabe Wittenberg. Um, I was wondering what the future of Fannie and Freddie looks like now that they have uh, paid back the taxpayer. Well, I would gently push back on your assertion. Uh, one, I believe as a matter of law, uh, they cannot pay back uh, the taxpayer under current law unless the law is amendment. That would be my first pushback. Uh, my second pushback, if you buy into the thesis that I do, that the affordable housing goals of Fannie and Freddie, uh, which they did uh, end up readily embracing, uh, was a major precipitating cause in the... Um, erosion of traditional underwriting standards that ultimately, again, put people in houses they couldn't afford to keep, then you might attribute, uh, um, you know, $13 trillion of economic damage. They own a pretty big chunk of that, so I'm not sure they can pay back the taxpayer there. Then even if I bought into the thesis that they have, quote, unquote, paid back the taxpayer, um, if they have done it, it's only because, once again, they are granted a duopoly status by provisions of law, crowding out any type of nascent private market uh, in the secondary mortgage market. So uh, with all due 
respect, I, I, I push back on that. But if you're coming from the, there are those who, yes, within Congress assert that, um, quote unquote, the taxpayer has been paid back. Uh, again, I don't buy into it. Uh, this job is not an easy one. I mean, once people who make a profit selling a product uh, has the full faith and credit of the United States of America behind that product, they are very loath to give it up. Uh, but I would say that, number one, this is a nation that must get off the boom-bust bailout cycle. Uh, there is a naturally corrective mechanism uh, within capitalism. Um, and I believe that we would have seen economic cycles like this, but I think only government can bring about economic cycles uh, like that. So we have passed this out of the House Financial Services Committee. I am hopeful. Uh, I don't have a firm commitment. I am hopeful that it will go to the House floor uh, by year's end. Uh, I am hopeful it will receive an affirmative vote. I am hopeful we will go to conference uh, with the Senate and come up with a sustainable housing policy, sustainable uh, for homeowners so we don't put them in homes they can't afford to keep, sustainable for taxpayers uh, so they're never called again to engage in the mother of all bailouts, Fannie and Freddie, and last but not least, sustainable for our uh, economy uh, so that, again, we can get off the boom-bust uh, bailout cycle. And so uh, the only way I know how to do that is let freedom ring within our capital markets. And it's um, uh, somewhat counterintuitive, uh, but a lot of the Eurozone is way ahead of us uh, in having more market-based uh, housing finance. Um, so occasionally we can learn from our neighbors across the pond. Again, I need to go back to the Capitol and do what the voters and constituents of the 5th District of Texas uh, pay me to do. Um, I thank you for the time, and I thank you for your interest and support of the Cato Institute. Thank you. I, I want to thank the Congressman for his remarks, and certainly he is one of the few uh, bright spots in, in Washington today. Uh, well, to, to backfill a little bit, uh, you know, much of today's conversation uh, has focused on the Fed's monetary role, and as you uh, gathered from the Congressman's remarks, our panel uh, now is about the Fed's regulatory role. Uh, important to keep in mind that unlike many other central banks around the world, the Fed is also a regulator uh, of banks. And under Dodd-Frank, it's expanded now to a regulator of non-banks, at least those that are deemed systemically important. Uh, I think the financial crisis also reveals that the Fed's record as a bank regulator may be almost as bad as its record on price stability. Uh, multiple regulatory decisions by the Fed in areas such as capital regulation, treatment of off-balance sheet liabilities and such would direct contributors to the crisis. Uh, the combination of both monetary policy and bank regulation within one entity also has the potential to create perverse incentives as a monetary authority may be tempted to provide excess liquidity in order to disguise its own failings as a regulator. Uh, so our second panel uh, will touch on many of these topics. And I am fortunate to have the opportunity to offer my glowing uh, introductions of our remaining panelists. Uh, our, our next panelist will be Cato's own John Allison, who serves here as president and CEO. Before coming to Cato, John was chairman and CEO of BB&T Corporation, the 10th largest financial services holding company in the United States. During his tenure there as CEO from 1989 to 2008, 
BB&T grew from 4.5 billion to over 100 uh, in 50 billion in assets. It's quite a growth streak. Uh, he was recognized by Harvard Business Review as one of the top 100 most successful CEOs in the world in the last decade. Uh, as uh, Chairman Henschelin also mentioned, he is the author of The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure, Why Capitalism is the World's Economy's Only Hope. I will note that we do have copies out front for sale, uh, and I'm sure if you uh, corner John somewhere, he'd be happy to sign a copy for you. Uh, our final panelist will be Kevin Dowd, who currently serves as Professor of Finance and Economics at Durham University in the United Kingdom. Kevin is one of the world's foremost experts in free banking, having published numerous uh, books and articles on, on the topic, literally far too many for me to count or to list. Uh, I will note that he is most recently the author with Martin Hutchinson, who I know is here, of uh, Alchemists of Lost, How Modern Finance and Government Intervention Crashed the Financial System. Uh, I don't say this just because I like both of these gentlemen a whole lot, but I say this that in all sincerity, uh, that if you want to try to understand the financial crisis, I really can't recommend a better place to start than both John and Kevin's books. Uh, and they are also great compliments to each other. Uh, somehow, Kevin managed to write the most accessible chapter on value at risk that I've ever come across. Uh, and somebody who can pull that off in layman's term uh, deserves a lot of applause. So with that, I'm going to turn the podium over to John. Uh, and then we'll have Kevin go, and then we'll open it up to questions. Thanks, Mark. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be with you. I first, on behalf of uh, Cato, I want to thank you all for being here. I know we have a number of sponsors are here, then I thank you for your support very much. You make uh, our work uh, possible. I'm going to talk from a little bit different perspective because I'm the only person that actually ran a, bu uh, a bank uh, uh, that's been speaking today. Um, and from that context, I can tell you with absolute certainty that market discipline beats regulatory discipline. In fact, I will argue that regulatory discipline will always fail in the context of uh, reducing volatility and also in the context that it will slow economic growth. And I base those comments on uh, my understanding of public choice theory and particularly on 40 years of concrete experience in the banking business. One observation, in my 40-year career, I don't know a single time where the federal regulators, this primarily would be the FDIC, actually identified a significant bank failure in advance. They're always the last guys to the party. Uh, after everybody in the market, the other bankers know something's going on. Uh, and so in that context, you have a 100% failure rate. And in my experience in banks, we took over because we did lots of mergers and acquisitions. When they did get involved in the bank that was struggling a little bit, they almost always, they always made it worse because they didn't know how to run a bank. Um, interesting uh, reflection from public choice theory reinforced consistently during, through my career is regulators regulate for the regulatory good. That shouldn't be too surprising. They like to talk about the public good, and sometimes the regulatory good and the public good may align, but they don't manage for the public good, they manage for the regulatory good, and that happens over and over again. And I can concretize what that means. First, in good times, Regulators basically don't regulate on things like safety and soundness. Why is that? Or if you're a local bank examiner, things are going along in the economy. Maybe you see something that bothers you in the bank, but it's not in trouble yet, but you think it might get in trouble. What's your best thing to do? Well, if you start raising a bunch of red flags, bankers have plenty of political contacts 
and you're going to have a real big problem. And you can't prove your point because you're guessing what's going to happen in more difficult times. So regulators basically don't regulate from a safety and soundness perspective during diff difficult times. I'll give you a concrete example of that. Um, BB&T took over a, a large failed bank called Colonial, $25 billion bank. We did it with FDIC assistance. Uh, they weren't doing us a favor. <laughs> they were failing, <laughs> and they needed somebody to take them over. Well, it was interesting. Um, in, when I was CEO, we did lots of acquisitions of community banks in, in the southeast, and Colonial was on our list of potential acquisition car, uh, car targets. We consciously decided not to, to acquire it without FDIC insistence because we knew it was going to fail. How do we know it was going to fail? First, it was rolling up lousy banks. If you make a lots of acquisitions of bad banks, you end up with a bad bank. Secondly, in competing with them, we, we observed that they would take what was called hog shares of high-risk credits we wouldn't touch. Thirdly, the CEO was a command and control guy who might could have run a $2 billion bank, but couldn't possibly uh, develop the, tank, uh, the talent to run a, a big bank. So we wouldn't acquire Colonial, uh, and we saw that from the outside, and the regulators missed it. They missed that process, and that was very typical. In addition, regulators are very politically driven. You got to remember that at the top of the regulatory organizations, these are basically political appointments. You don't get on these, you don't get to be the head of the FDIC without having some political contacts. You don't get to be the head of the Federal Reserve without having political contacts. It just doesn't work that way. So you, you have people that come from a political perspective. So regulations change a lot with who the president is, what the administration is. So we don't have rule of law. We have rule of regulators driven by what's happening in the current environment. Concretizing that, under Bill Clinton, his big issue was fair lending. They, the regulators paid almost no attention to safety and soundness, which didn't matter because the economy was doing well, right? Uh, it could have done mattered, but it didn't matter. They focused on fair lending. Under George Bush, uh, we focused almost exclusively on the Patriot Act. One of the great myths, however, is that banks were regulated under Bush. Three major new laws were passed under Bush. The Privacy Act, Sarbanes-Oxley, and the Patriot Act. There was a massive increase in regulation during the Bush uh, era, the most until the re recent times. So we were not deregulated, as the myth goes. We were misregulated. In fact, that's one of the great myths that's out there, is the cause of the financial crisis was a combination of deregulation of the banking business, we weren't deregulated, and then greed on Wall Street. Now, in my 40-year career, there's always been plenty of greed on Wall Street. There's not one shred of evidence there was any more greed than usual. Uh, in fact, the financial crisis, as uh, uh, was just described, was really caused by a combination of mistakes made by the Federal Reserve. In the early 2000s, we, were, we had a housing bubble that started in 1993. We had house prices about 15% too high already in the early 2000s based on income. The market was getting ready to correct. The FIC Greenspan shows up with negative real interest rates, spurs the bubble on, on up, and we end up with a 30 35% correction. Of course, that was added on by Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. And yes, plenty of banks made big mistakes and should have been allowed to fail, but those split stakes were highly incented by government <coughs> policy. So the recent financial crisis wasn't caused by deregulation or greed. It was caused by government policy. And yes, some institutions made mistakes within the context of highly incented policies from the regulators. Now, under uh, President Obama, we have a unique phenomenon in my career. We have uh, an administration that likes all regulations. <laughs> they like everything. Now, the dilemma with that is you can't comply with every regulation because there's so many of them. 
So the Privacy Act and the Patriot Act are in conflict with each other, which makes it tough. It gives the regulators a lot of leverage because you can't possibly comply with all the laws that they, they have going on. Uh, but this is a regulatory onslaught of all time, reflecting the beliefs, the, the tone from the top uh, from the current administration. Now, in addition to, to regulators being too good in the good times, they're too bad in the bad times. They always overreact because now the game has changed. The bankers don't have any political leverage at all. The regulators are again being blamed for the problem, so they show up and they grossly overreact. Because most of the time, the regulatory agencies have stripped their senior people. They hire a bunch of children to come in who now are experts on what banks ought to be doing. And they, and they show up and tell you they've never made a loan. They never collected a loan. They've never been in business. And now they are experts. And we saw this in spades in the last recession. In fact, this current Great Recession, it was much deeper because of the excessive over-regulatory reaction to the lending business. And it was a really bizarre phenomenon. Because on one hand, the administration said, let's don't foreclose on the housing market, right? Let's protect homeowners. People hadn't paid their homes and their, their, their payments in two or three years. Let's don't foreclose on them. But those business guys, they're bad. You know, business are naturally bad people. Let's go cream the residential builders and development, developers. So we put about 95% of the local residential builders and development developers in the United States in, in growth markets out of business. We did it. We didn't need to do it. A lot of those people had been in the business 50 years. Some of them should have failed. A lot of them that failed didn't need to fail. But you had this bifurcated regulatory uh, phenomena driven by people that had no ability to make judgments and had no expertise in what they were doing. We're just taking kind of a, a tone from the top reaction. And in my career, I went through the early 80s and went through the early 90s, we had that same over-regulatory reaction in both cases. This time was just the most severe case. What's also interesting, um, in this last correction, we had the particularly biggest failure of regulators because they spurred an unnecessary panic. We needed an economic correction, but we didn't need a panic. And a lot of the damage to the economy came from the panic, not the economic correction. And they created a panic because they basically suspended rule of law. There was no predictability. There was no policy. There was no plan. Again, I went through the 80s and 90s, and for all the foibles, at least you kind of knew what to get rules of the games were. This time, this, was, by the way, was under Republican administration. There were no rules of the game. They uh, uh, let Wachovia fail, and they tried to sell them to Citigroup, who everybody in the market know was, knew was more broke than Wachovia. Uh, <laughs> they, let, they saved Bear Stearns, which everybody in the market knew couldn't possibly be a systems risk. I mean, we've been doing business with Bear Stearns for 75 years. We didn't lose a penny when they went broke. There was no systems risk in Bear Stearns. They saved Bear Stearns, and everybody says, well, God, they're going to save everybody. Then they let Lehman fail. Um, Washington Mutual, large bank, was an old thrift, fails on the West Coast. They arbitrarily decide to bail out the uninsured depositors and, and, and cream the bondholders, which closed the market for banks. When rule of law fails, when you just got people making arbitrary decisions, there's no context, there's no rationality for decisions, that's when you get in a panic. And that's exactly what happened. Markets respond, they make corrections, sometimes they can be tough. Panics are usually involved some kind of government interference in the process. Another very interesting thing, and, and uh, Kevin and Martin both uh, participated in, in doing a study that relates to this, was there was a massive failure of mathematical modeling. Uh, the Fed's models failed. All the large financial institutions that failed were experts at mathematical modeling. I don't know how many times I was told we ought to have models like Wachovia, we ought to have models like Citigroup, we ought to have models like Bank of America, all which had big, big problems. 
So mathematical modeling failed, and that mathematical modeling was forced on the banks and then used by the banks to justify taking uh, irrational risk. What is really ironic, and I, th I think this is the biggest risk I've seen in my 40-year career is what's happening right now. And that is that the Federal Reserve is forcing all large financial institutions to primarily manage their risk using mathematical models, which will ultimately create some very big-time problems. There are all kinds of problems with mathematical modeling when you take it too seriously. It can be used as a tool, but if you look at weather modeling, you should be suspect of mathematical modeling, right? <laughs> um, but one of the big problems, they always assume normal curves. I've never met a normal curve in the real world. They always have uh, these very small tails. And the reason for that, that they're always going to have small tails, if they had a big tail, nobody would pay any attention to them, right? But what, of course, what happens is the tails are always bigger, and these are the unexpected, extraordinary events, and they're the only thing that matters. The rest of the curve doesn't matter. It only matters when you get into the tails, and they, they, the models always treat the tails to zero. But the biggest issue, is mathematical models delude managements into <coughs> believing they're managing risk. So people become overconfident. Um, what's very, I, I, it was very interesting thing to think conceptually. You can't really manage risk. You either take it or you don't. If you take the risk, it's going to come back and bite you someday. And when you believe that you can manage risk, uh, when you're actually taking a lot of risk, you're going to make a lot of bad decisions. This is the worst case because the Fed is basically forcing everybody to use the same mathematical models, which means we're all collectively going to make the same mistake. And they're basically using, they're going to use it for credit allocation, right? And so the, that's how we got into the subprime lending business, the same kind of phenomenon. They can, they can move these weights around on these capital models, and if everybody's in together, they can achieve social policy at the expense of the safety and soundness of the bank. I'll give you some other micro examples about the, the danger of regulation and modeling in, in specifically. Another area that banks are having to use mathematical modeling in almost exclusively is for small business loan decisions. Now here's the problem. Small business lending is part art and part science. And what's going on today, the practical effect of small business lending standards because of this focus on mathematical modeling is the worst in my 40-year career. Look at small business creation. Small business creation is at an all-time low. It's not that existing small businesses can't get loans. It's the guy that comes in with an idea that's basically a venture capital idea, and small business lending is a lot of venture capital ideas, and we can't do those loans anymore. Because here's what happens. If a, if a loan meets mathematical standards, we were going to make it anyway. The loans that matter are the ones that don't meet the mathematical standards, but you make a judgment that that person, that idea, that plan will work, and you make that loan anyway. I did that a lot. And some of those businesses were extraordinarily successful and created hundreds of thousands of jobs. I will tell you today, if I were a small business lender, I couldn't make those loans because they wouldn't have made the mathematical standards forced on us by regulators. So practically speaking, small business lending standards were what I call venture capital small business lending uh, is the, the, tight, the tightest they've been in, in, in my 40 years. Now, here's another thing. Consumer lending. This is somebody was talking about the new consumer quote compliance, which is consumer regulation provisions, and I would call this unintended consequences. There was a great big debate you may have heard about on something called the qualified lenders test, and this was the standards they were going to set for home mortgage loans. Well, what was interesting, this shouldn't be surprising, 
they ended up setting incredibly low standards, lower than subprime lending standards. So they set standards below the subprime levels. Okay, that's very interesting. But they tacked onto these standards an incredible package of paperwork the bank has to do. And if you fail to do the paperwork, your loan is no good. Your loan is no good. Now, I'm going to tell you what happened at BB&T. For 50 years, we've been making small consumer loans in our branches. Somebody comes in, wants to add a carport, wants to add a, expand the kitchen in their house. We just make the loan in the branch. They don't have to save them a ton of paperwork, a ton of trouble, very low loss ratios in those loans. Can't do that anymore. Not because the, the loans aren't way better than the standard, but because if we screw up in the paperwork, we can not only have that loan challenge, we can have all of our loan portfolio challenged because we haven't done the paperwork right. So we're centralizing loan decisions for those kind of loans, which the practical effect will be we'll make a lot less loans of that kind because you can't teach 2,000 branch managers how to do this much paperwork. Unintended consequences of government regulation. One of the just other fundamental questions. There's no way the regulators know what risk banks ought to take. They don't have some special insight. Only the market discipline can tell you that question. By disciplined banks, by charging higher rates on, on the bond portfolio, by <laughs> impacting the stock prices. And you need banks experimenting with different risk parameters and letting markets answer that question. Forcing everybody to take the same risks and the same standards radically reduces economic growth. I would argue that Dodd-Frank and its implementation by the Federal Reserve has had a bigger negative impact on economic growth than the Obamacare phenomenon has. And I think it's ironic. Here's the Fed printing money willy-nilly on one hand, and then the regulatory arm is making it hard for banks to make loans. Now, it's particularly small business loans, which is kind of the core of job creation in the U.S. So small business lending has been hamstringed by the regulatory side of the Federal Reserve. Now, what's the solution? Uh, my solution's pretty radical. Uh, it's in my book. Um, what I would do is, number one, I would get rid of government deposit insurance. Bert Ely, who is here, developed a, a concept that would work for the privatization of deposit insurance for small depositors. <laughs> and that's what deposit insurance ought to be. So that would be number one. Number two, I would get rid of the Federal Reserve. Because I, I think the volatility in the economy is primarily caused by the Federal Reserve. I think sound money matters. I think when the Fed's radically changing the, the money supply and doing all the things that, that we just looked at, it makes economic calculation hard. It creates, well, I think every bubble in my career, the markets would have bubbled. The Fed's made them worse. I think, and I think they're doing it today. Uh, I think there's bubbles being created by the Fed today, and I think they'll keep doing it. I think you need... Um, uh, a private banking system based on something like a gold standard. I think that would work. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. We keep going back and comparing to the 1870s and say, well, they had all these flaws. You know, in 1870, we were riding around in steam engines. We have aircraft today. What if we'd been learning since 18, not since 1913 in private markets instead of having put in a, a government monopoly? I think we would have solved a lot of issues and have a radically better financial system in the U.S. And let's assume we're not going to do that. I think it's possible we won't do that. Uh, I have another simple solution. We ought to simply raise the capital standards for banks. And I would raise them to 15 to 20 percent. Uh, that before the Fed, banks basically kept 20 percent capital. There have been no bank failures for 20 percent capital. Uh, let's, let's raise the capital standards to 20 percent. But simultaneously, we've got to get rid of all the regulations. We've got to get rid of Dodd-Frank, CRA, 
truth in lending, et cetera, et cetera. Because banks cannot pay the regulatory burden, which is huge. Grossly, we, about 25% of our cost structure relates to regulations in the banking business. We can't pay the regulatory burden and have high capital standards. That's, by the way, why Dodd-Frank can't work. They want banks to raise their capital standards, and then they've imposed this massive regulatory burden. Of course, it's killing community banks first. We're, forcing a, we're going to force a consolidation uh, in the industry because even though theoretically they're immune to these, these, these rules, they aren't in practice because what regulator is going to let a small bank not do what it causes this big bank to do? So I would raise the capital standards, let markets discipline banks, decide who was taking ra rational risk, and I believe that would actually reduce volatility and create better economic growth. Free markets work. Why wouldn't they work in the banking business? Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, theme of uh, Martin and my uh, paper is nicely summarized by a quote from Thomas Sewell. He says, it's hard to imagine a more stupid or dangerous way of making decisions than by putting those in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong. <laughs> and I think it's as simple as that. And I think the history of the Federal Reserve provides a perfect example of this elementary truth. Now, once upon a time, the United States had a simple system that regulated itself. When a crisis occurred, it would be dealt with by industry leaders. These provided emergency loans and in some cases issued emergency currency. The most famous example was 1907 orchestrated by J.P. Morgan from his library. The only role played by the government in this deal was to agree not to undermine the uh, solution of the crisis by, uh, invoke, uh, by promising not to invoke the Sherman Act, because essentially the centerpiece was the uh, acquisition by U.S. Steel of Tennessee Coal and Iron, which was in violation of the Sherman Act. So the president helpfully agreed not to get in the way, and the problem was solved. Now, of course, there was no Fed. Underlying this system was a conventional wisdom that was much more laissez-faire than today. And associated with this, and I think this is very important, were high levels of personal liability and personal responsibility. And these created strong incentives to keep costs down and to control risk-taking. There was also little formal regulation. Those involved understood that bad regulations were costly and that they themselves would bear the risk, bear the cost, sorry. Participants also operated against the backdrop of the discipline of the gold standard. This served to ensure that interest rates and the cost of credit were largely beyond the control of individual institutions and in line with market fundamentals. So all in all, there was a tightly governed, self-managing system with lots of reinforcing checks. Then the Federal Reserve came along and one by one, the props that controlled excess were kicked away. So let's begin with monetary policy. How is the Fed's record? Well, not very good. I mean, let's take as read the catastrophe of the 30s and the inflationary excesses of the 50s onwards, both due in large part to Fed mismanagement. A recurring theme is the boom-bust cycle itself a product of Fed policy. We had the low interest rate policies of the 1920s and associated boom and bust. We saw much the same in the late 60s and the bust of 1970. Again, in the late 80s, when Alan Greenspan introduced his famous put in the aftermath of October 87. This was followed by further easing in 91. By the mid-90s, 
Mr Greenspan was complaining of irrational exuberance. <laughs> he responded not by raising, but by reducing interest rates, stimulating the tech boom, which went bust in 01. He responded to that by a more aggressive monetary policy. This produced an even bigger boom that culminated in 08, 09. His successor then responded with an even more aggressive monetary <laughs> policy in the process stimulating the biggest bubbles of all time and leaving policymakers with a huge headache, or hangover, should I say. We get an ever more damaging boom-bust cycle in the state of affairs described by British central banker Andy Haldane. Now, speaking to the Treasury Select Committee in June, Haldane said that the biggest risk to global financial stability right now is that posed by inflated government bond markets. He then told astonished MPs, let's be clear, we have intentionally blown the biggest, the biggest government bond bubble in history. So basically, there's a, the central bankers admitted it. They have intentionally created the biggest threat to financial stability that we face. So basically, all those critics of the Fed may as well give up and go home. <laughs> now, the same could be said for the Federal Reserve. The financial system wouldn't be so unstable if the Fed hadn't tried so hard to stabilize it. <laughs> I think we know that the latest bubbles must burst, and when they do, interest rates will rise. When that happens, the financial system will collapse again. The temptation will then be to prop up bond markets by monetizing what could well be the entire government debt. Inflation will then be off to the races. Now, central bank officials have no credible solutions to the problems that they have created. Instead, they offer lame excuses and ask us to trust them again as they try to gamble their way out. In these circumstances, it's not surprising that policy discussions are increasingly dominated by cult of personality nonsense. The genius of Ben Bernanke or whoever, <laughs> as if these people had some magic wand that would make our problems go away. Of course, they won't. Now, let me get to the bad news. Unfortunately, <laughs> not, it's not just monetary policy that's the problem. There's the lender of last resort function. Now, in the old days, this was provided by the market itself, and it worked. <laughs> then the central bank took it over, and it all got horribly out of control. Now, we have a very weird policy logic here. We rule out the best solution, which is free banking. This is mistake number one. We then offer bankers help instead of punishment when they get into difficulties. This is mistake number two. The sign is wrong. Instead, we don't just help them. We bail them out and never mind all those earlier promises that next time we really are going to let badly run banks fail. Instead, the bankers see those threats as what they are, which is hot air. And we find ourselves with the albatross of too big to fail stuck around our necks and a huge incentive uh, to take irresponsible risks. So if we ever want to put this particular genie back in its bottle, bankers who get into difficulties need to face personal punishment. Now, of course, critics might argue that they would never then apply for assistance. We would argue this is exactly the point. We don't want them to. Then there's the Federal Deposit Insurance. This was established in 1934 to stabilize the banking system by removing the incentive of depositors to run. It was bitterly opposed by the bank, bankers of the time, 
The president of the ABA called it unsound, unscientific and dangerous, and he was right. Deposit insurance was bad because it creates major moral hazards, incentivizes banks to take risks, to run down their capital. And critics also pointed out that when it was tried at the state level, it didn't work. A good example was Texas in the 20s. To quote one observer, the plan made too many banks and too few bankers. All kinds of incapable people tried to start a bank under the protection of the fund. The system gave a false sense of security. People looked to the fund for protection and paid no attention to the soundness of the banks. Such an unsound system weakened the financial structure of the entire state. As Richard Salzman nicely put it, federal deposit insurance was instituted under political expediency despite prescient warnings and frequent references to the most basic of economics. The eventual outcome was the crisis of the 80s and early 90s and the destruction of much of the American thrift industry. Then there's financial regulation. Well, I think the most basic metric of financial regulation is its length. The Federal Reserve Act was th ran to 32 pages, so I believe. Glass-Steagall was 37 pages. Dodd-Frank is 848 pages long. But this is, gets much worse. The scope and structure of Dodd-Frank are very different from earlier laws. In essence, all this 848 pages is merely an outline that instructs bureaucrats to make even more regulations and create even more bureaucracies. So experts have suggested that the eventual Dodd-Frank rulebook might run to maybe 30,000 pages. But personally, we feel that's rather optimistic. <laughs> when they hit that, they'll just carry on producing more rules. But then there is the huge and growing cost of financial regulation. So we see the SEC budget up 91% since 07, CFTC budget up 407% since 07, OCC up 69%, CFPB a cool half a billion, and this didn't even exist a couple of years ago. Then, of course, there's Basel, and then there's the Fed. And these are only some of the direct costs of regulation. You've got all the costs of compliance, and then you've got the indirect costs of regulation, things like the damage they do, the cost of, da of poorly designed rules, the crises bungled by regulators, and so on. Then you have all the poorly designed rules, and John has spoken very eloquently about these. I'll merely say that what is worse than poorly designed rules are poorly designed gameable rules. These encourage the looting of bank capital and secret offloading of risks onto other parties with serious systemic implications. So some of my favorites are capital plundering or how to destroy securitizations. These leave banks seriously capital depleted, even though their risk-adjusted numbers are better. Then we have SPV alchemy. You take a portfolio of junk, turn it into AAA, flog it off using a special purpose vehicle, and watch the fun when the alchemy goes into reverse. Then you have hidden hypothecations in which banks furtively pledge assets to counterparties while the assets remain, they furtively pledged assets to other parties while the assets remain on the balance sheets to deceive future counterparties, which is fraud. Then you have hidden rehypothecations in which there is the uh, secret, typically uh, secret, reposting of collateral 
that has been posted with financial institutions. Many investors think that when they make a collateral, some uh, collateral or whatever uh, deposit, it's just put in a vault and it's safe. But this is not how it works. Now, this problem, the fact is that a, a lot of these collaterals are reposted re a dozen times, 20 times or more. And this came apparent uh, it, with the MF Global meltdown in 2001. And this showed how client funds were being shifted around and then lost in a massive Wall Street manipulation of brokerage rules. Now, to be fair to Wall Street, they were exploiting flaws in British rules that left American investors exposed. So you can't blame it all on the Fed. But the numbers involved in this daisy chain are staggering. CIBC, $72 billion. RBC, 54 billion. Credit Suisse, 332 billion Swiss francs. JP Morgan, $410 billion. Morgan Stanley, over half a trillion dollars. If anyone thought that you couldn't have your cake and eat it too, MF Global shows that you can have your cake, eat it, eat someone else's cake, and then let your clients pick up the bill and stay out of jail. <laughs> then you've got regulatory capture. So you have captured by the industry who game the rules, captured by the regulators who push for more power and resources. The Falker rule is a perfect example. This had the worthy intention of banning proprietary trading by institutions on government support, and so stopped one avenue by which traders could speculate for gain at the expense of the taxpayer. Now, threatened with the loss of one of its favorite lunch buckets, the industry responded by lobbying for more exemptions and in so doing, they bloated it into a 530-page monstrosity, killing it by filling it full of holes. They then moaned afterwards that it was too long and complex to implement. They'd certainly seen to that. And remember that Folker's original idea was for a simple rule that left no exemptions and no ambiguity. You've got to understand that regulatory capture is also the reason why so many bad rules exist on the book, despite their weaknesses being well known. They exist because they serve the interests of key groups. John mentioned, for example, the, the endorsement of the Gaussianity assumption and the useless value-at-risk measure. These are useful to the banks because they lead to major underestimates of risk exposures and hence low capital charges. Capital can then be siphoned off and senior management can play dumb when the bank collapses. Another example is Basel II. Now, Basel II is just thousands of pages of gibberish. It was rolled out in 2004 after a decade-long effort to put it together. Then the crisis hit and the banking system crashed. In the panic, regulators then rushed out many thousands of pages of new draft rules, many more, many more thousands of discussion papers and consultation documents. And so great was the regulatory material, the deluge of regulatory material, that by spring 2010, observers were joking that this was tantamount to a Basel III. By the fall of that year, Basel III <laughs> had become a reality. So the joke was on the jokers. But I would suggest that the real jokers are those who tell us that the solution to all that gobbledygook is to have even more of it crafted on the fly by the same people who'd gotten it wrong before, not to mention the times before that. Now, this reminds us that modern financial regulatory systems are not only prone to th failure, but they thrive on it. In any sensible system, failure would lead to some error correction. This is what the market does. 
In practice, this always gets hijacked into let's have more regulation. So when it fails, the response is not let's get rid of all that useless regulation, but let's create a system that works. That's what we want. That then gets hijacked into let's have more regulation. In this game, nothing succeeds like failure. There's also the problem that there's no mechanism to make rules or policies consistent. Again, John has spoken very eloquently on this. Consistency becomes impossible. And faced with rules that clash or laws that clash, those who, who arbitrate, the, the policymakers, the regulators, can choose which laws or rules to apply and which to ignore. Whatever the problem, they can point to some rule that addresses it. And never mind the fact that it's contradicted by something somewhere else. They can then argue with the appearance of plausibility that their regulatory systems address any and all problems. And then we have the appearance of rules, but the reality of unaccountable discretion on the part of those managing the system, whether it's monetary policy makers or financial regulators. And there's no mechanism to hold them to account. So basically, they couldn't have come up with a system that was less fit for purpose, even if they'd set out to do so. And bang goes the rule of law, and we end up with a regulatory dictatorship. And we've gone from a system that managed itself to one that requires management, but cannot actually be managed. And so the outstanding question is simple. How do we get back from here to there? And preferably before the system collapses. Now, obviously, at rollout, John's already said this, and other speakers the same, get rid of the Fed, get rid of deposit insurance, get rid of all that useless financial regulation. I would add restore extended liability for bankers, get, certainly get out of Basel and all that, Dodd-Frank, the whole lot, get rid of it, and restore a gold standard or some similar sane monetary regime. But to end on a not-too-helpful note, I mean, one can't resist the temptation for bad taste. This reminds me, the situation we're in, reminds me of the punchline of a classic Irish joke. I wouldn't start from here if I were you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Kevin, well, with, with that mind. We have a, a few moments for a few questions. Uh, and again, I emphasize if you could have your question in the form of a question, uh, we will start here. I will again ask you to wait until the microphone uh, arrives, which should be very shortly. <clears throat> Uh, John, this question is for you. Okay. Have you ever thought about running for President of the United States? <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. My wife, who happens to be here, said she'd divorce me if I got involved in politics, so I'm not going to run. <laughs> but, 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 John, we have to have in politics people who have the wisdom that you've shown and also have the wit, <laughs> and you would be a most effective candidate. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Over here on the aisle. And I would ask if you could identify yourself when you begin your question. Hi, Vern McKinley. I'm a central bank consultant, and I had a, a question for Mr. Allison as far as if he could give his ideas on uh, this recent back and forth between um, the FDIC and JP Morgan regarding the purchase of uh, Washington Mutual and the issues about the liabilities and 
and what that means going forward for purchase and assumption agreements uh, that are extended by the FDIC? Well, if they actually end up, if, if a lot of the penalty relates to Washington Mutual, I think that nobody's going to buy a bad bank in, in, under those circumstances again. Because how, how can you possibly define the penalties? Now, it may be that they'll have to enter into a new contract that says that, hey, we pick up these kind of liabilities. Because you can't do, go in, if you've got a failing organization, there's no way to go in and do due diligence and figure out the peripheral liabilities. You can figure out the risk in the loan portfolio, but you can't figure out this other stuff. Now, when we bought Colonial, and maybe the FDIC will have to, maybe J.P. Morgan didn't do this, we we uh, we wouldn't take those type liabilities. We said we're out. So and they didn't have another buyer, so they sold it to us anyway. Uh, and maybe they, there was some option in Washington Mutual. But I, I think I, I also think, and this is personal opinion, no science on this. I think there's a witch witch hunt going on in regards to J.P. Morgan because they hadn't been humble enough. And I think there's a message, and I think it's intentional. It's Chicago politics. It's intentional message to the rest of the industry. So what has the rest of the industry done? Everybody's scared to death. They're all petrified. So nobody's going to say anything bad about Dodd-Frank. They're not going to, you know, because they're scared to death. And I think that's, that's what this is about. And I, and I really think, I think it's really bad, personal opinion. Right here in front. Carl Golovin, Mr. Dowd, if you'll indulge me just to compliment you on your pointing out that trying to create instability caused instability. In physics, there's a principle called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You can know a particle's position or its energy, but not both at the same time. And I wonder if we have something that might be the inverse corollary, corollary the Fed or Bernanke uncertainty principle. We don't know how much money there is, so we don't know how much it's worth. And in 1934, uh, the federal government of Franklin Roosevelt seized about 8,000 tons of gold from the American people, made it illegal to own gold. And people were given Federal Reserve notes that promised redeemability for that gold, which never happened. And my question for all of you is, where is that gold now and whose is it technically? Is it, it should still be the American people's. And why, instead of monetary policy, wouldn't monetary reality be to restore redeemability and return that gold to the American people? I don't know where the gold is, so <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe nobody knows the answer. The gold is on the books of the Federal Reserve banks, uh, and so their joint statement has that gold, and it's worth uh, something like $1.4 trillion. So it's a very good thing. I mean, the American people uh, benefited from stealing from those people in 34. <laughs> well, can, I, can I just make two comments? I believe that the gold is said to be in Fort Knox, or a lot of it. But whether it is, well, I don't well, know. the gold. There's some of the gold in the depository at Fort Knox. There's some of the gold in the vault of yeah. the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Yeah. Yes, I think that's right. But, but it, this is why. But we, the ownership is what I was talking no, about. No, I agree. But also, we need proper auditing of the Fed. Uh, but I agree. The, the point about the theft. Uh, theft is always good for the. Well, well you're, I'm sorry, but you're chasing. <laughs> you're chasing a dumb deal when you worry about auditing the Fed. I was. I was involved in terms of appointing board. The, 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 the Fed is audited and audited within. Mm. Now, you may not like that, but I, you're not going to find anything with a Fed audit. 
Uh, let me say as an aside, as we move to, uh, Martin, did you have a question? Um, and please wait for the microphone, but while you are, I will say, a lot of the discussion about the Fed Auditor are less about the financials, which are currently audited, but more a GAO program-style audit of monetary policy. Uh, Martin? Uh, Martin Hutchinson, Bears Lair. Janet Yellen, in her congressional testimony this morning, said that it was imperative to promote a very strong recovery. The stock market is highly encouraged by this. I wonder if our panel could let us know precisely how encouraged they are. <laughs> oh, I, I'm not an uh, economic projector or a market projector. I think, you know, in the short term, maybe this will be good. Who knows? But in the long term, I think it's a disaster. I think we are creating creating massive bubbles, unprecedented, and when they start, and they're global, and when they start coming undone, I think it's going to really be tough. Uh, but uh, the dilemma with that, it could be ten years. It's it, it, it takes a long time. You know, Greenspan was making mistakes in my view in the early 2000s, but it was 2008 before it hit the fan, and that's why people make this disconnect. They don't get the long lead times in the negative impact of these massive investments. I would argue inflation is going up like crazy if you count asset prices, right? Farmland, real estate, uh, and, and just account consumer prices in inflation is very misleading, I, I believe. Martin, can I comment as well? I, I mean, if the Fed, if the stock market goes up on an announcement like that from, from Ms. Yellen, that worries me because mm. in the past, these things always ended up in tears. And I'm very much reminded of Lezek's point you know, that growth is good, recession is bad. You know, we're looking at the wrong thing. We don't want stoking up another crisis. Is good before the crisis comes, but we need to think longer term. Okay, I think we have time for one more, so we'll take the question in the far back. Um, um, if, you, if you could wait for just a moment to, for, for the microphone, uh, I know it's quickly on its way. Dave Brad with BB&T Moral Foundation's program at Randolph-Macon College. John, you raised a very troubling aspect. When major corporate leaders in the country are scared of the politicians, it used to be the politicians were scared of business and you had to follow some the people. And so Cato's in favor of free markets, but you need powerful entities. And if we've lost American business and business it's, itself is scared of the political entities right now, do you see any hope or do you see any power base that can over overcome that fear? Well, I certainly see hope. I think we're fighting an uphill battle, but the, the good news, bad news is a lot of these policies don't work. And when they don't work, at least you have an opportunity to re-examine them. But we are in what I would consider to be a very vicious cycle where as government expands, it becomes more necessary, quote, for businesses to become crony capitalists or crony socialists. Because if they don't, they're not necessarily looking for awards. They're trying to avoid penalties. So you get this really vicious cycle that you reinforce this relationship between business and government that, you know, is corporatism, it's state capitalism, whatever you want to call it. And we're clearly moving that way. Now, if I look at our, most of our supporters are entrepreneurs, people that created their own business. And I would say if there's a salvation, it's in the successful entrepreneurs. But we have, except for in technology, what we're doing with public policy is really creaming entrepreneurship in America. Small business, I mentioned this whole issue of small business development. So the, the seed corn that usually fights these policies, because most of the times, if you look today, big businesses in general are benefiting from what's going on. This is a massive subsidy to large corporations, and it's killing job, a, a creation of new jobs. 
But if you, I, I was just talking to the restaurant association, and, it, and these guys get it because they're all entrepreneurs. These are the uh, restaurant leadership association. They are benefiting because no new restaurants are getting opened up except by them themselves. You know, they're opening up more restaurants of their own or even if they change brands. But the, the number of restaurants being created by new entrepreneurs is as low as it's been since they've been keeping records because it's almost impossible to get restaurant finance now uh, in, the, in the U.S. because those are the small business guys that, that, you know, don't meet all the numbers. And so it's, a, it's kind of a self-reinforcing and self-defeating phenomenon. But people that started as entrepreneurs, and even though I, I worked in a bank, I grew up from a small bank to a big bank, they get it, and some of them get it intellectually and are on our side, but certainly big business uh, uh, is not because they're caught in this vicious cycle. Thank you, John. I want to thank our, our panelists. Uh, we're going to break for a little bit more than 10 minutes, and I encourage everybody to be back here around 3.30. Uh, thank you. Thank you.